Good afternoon. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm very pleased to welcome our distinguished guest this afternoon, Frank Castigliola, uh, presenting as part of the Mershon Diplomatic History Series. Frank is a professor of history at the University of Connecticut, where he specializes in the history of 20th century U.S. history and U.S. foreign relations. One of Frank's most recent publications is an article entitled Broken Circle, the Isolation of Franklin D. Roosevelt in World War II, which appeared last fall, November 2008, in Diplomatic History. He's currently writing a book called Lost Alliances, How Personal Politics Helped Win World War II and Form the Cold War. This book covers the impact of emotions and perceived cultural differences in the shaping of U.S., British, and Soviet foreign policy during and immediately after World War II. <coughs> Frank has received fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Nobel Institute, and recently learned that he'll be a fellow next year at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton. And Frank is also serving this year, calendar year 2009, as president of the Society for Historians of American Foreign Relations. Uh, that's a very distinguished dossier. Today, Frank's going to speak on the perils of intimacy. Harry Hopkins is Franklin D. Roosevelt's national security advisor. As usual, you're invited to continue uh, enjoying your lunch while he talks. He'll aim for around 30 or 40 minutes, and then we'll have plenty of time for questions and answers. Please join me in welcoming Frank Costagliola. First of all, I want to thank uh, Peter for that very nice introduction, and also thank the Mushan Center and the Department of History for inviting me here, and, and uh, I'm really, it's a pleasure for me to be here. I also want to thank Bob McMahon, who originally extended the invitation, and um, of course is, is in China as, as we speak. Um, historians continue to rank Franklin D. Roosevelt as the greatest president in the 20th century. Roosevelt's key assistant during the war years was Harry L. Hopkins, a former social worker who had headed the New Deal's Make Work program, the WPA. Is the microphone working? Okay. okay. On the 10th of May, 1940, the Nazi war machine lunged westward. Churchill became prime minister on that day. On that same day, Roosevelt invited his friend Hopkins to dine at the White House. Though Harry had no foreign policy experience, FDR valued his judgment. Hopkins came to dinner and stayed in the White House more than three years until December 1943. For the first years of the war then, Hopkins enjoyed unparalleled access to the president. He was closer to FDR than anyone. A rival observed that aboard Roosevelt's yacht, Hopkins could walk into the president's cabin without even being announced or even without knocking. Hopkins taunted another rival, Tommy Corcoran, by saying, remember, Tommy, anything you spend an entire day doing, I can undo after supper. On the one hand, this access enabled Roosevelt and Hopkins to work efficiently. On the other hand, the very closeness generated expectations and tensions that would estrange Roosevelt and Hopkins in 1944-45. Tragically, Roosevelt was largely on his own during his last year as he struggled with the climax of the war and planning for the post-war world. Roosevelt valued his friend in at least four ways. First, Hopkins excelled at turning presidential brainstorms into concrete programs. He could lash or bypass the bureaucracy to get results. Second, he became the president's go-between with Churchill, Stalin, General Marshalls, and other officials. Third, FDR enjoyed, enjoyed relaxing with Harry, who shared his love for cards, jokes, gossip, and attractive women. Roosevelt had a dis 
dangerous habit of procrastinating, putting off difficult decisions. Harry compensated for this tendency by sensing when the boss's mood permitted broaching a point of business during a poker game or on a Potomac cruise. Finally, Roosevelt seems to have been drawn to Hopkins as someone who was also handicapped, both handicapped and empowered by illness. Hopkins operated with charm and ruthlessness. He was an informal, hedonic, womanizing, wisecracking former social worker who read poetry. Like FDR, he both sympathized with the poor and enjoyed socializing with the rich. Harry could disarm, he recalled FDR Jr. He could make you his friend in the first five minutes of a conversation. He had this marvelous ability to grow, in, grow into any new situation, to totally dominate the details of any new problem. Hopkins was born in Iowa in 1890. His family was always hurting for money. He attended Grinnell College and scholarships and then became a social work administrator in New York City. Governor Roosevelt tapped him to head the state's relief program. As WPA director in the New Deal, Hopkins oversaw the spending of about $9 billion, more than any other government official. In 1941, he became the overseer of Lendlease, a $70 billion effort. One of the many contradictions of Hopkins' life was that while wisely managing this public money, he himself was usually broke. He paid out over one half of his salary in payments to his former wife. He also loved horse racing, had huge medical bills, and expensive tastes. Harry borrowed money that he could not repay. He depended on regular supplements to his salary from wealthy friends of the administration, such as uh, Averill Harriman and Bernard, Bernard Baruch. In 1938-39, Roosevelt talked to Harry about making him the 1940 candidate for president. Hopkins would never quite recover from this bout of presidential fever. But his ambitions, and it seemed his life, was, were cut short by illness. In 1937, surgeons removed much of his stomach. Though his cancer did not return, he began to suffer from spells of weakness, diarrhea, vomiting, poor vision, and a burning cessation in his extremities. Some weeks, he lost nearly a pound of weight a day. Doctors remained unsure what plagued him. It now appears that he suffered from intolerance for wheat gluten, something he never realized at all, and also from um, hepatitis B, which he contracted from the many transfusions which he had. The hepatitis led to cirrhosis of the liver, which he aggravated with periodic drinking. Franklin and Eleanor's daughter, Anna, observed the pattern. Hopkins would keep away from whiskey for long periods, and then when the doctors would say, then, then he was feeling better again, he would take the whiskey again, with the result that he'd find himself back in the hospital. Smoking four packs of Lucky Strikes a day did not help. In 1939, when Harry appeared near death, the president summoned the best doctors in the country. They started a regimen of transfusions of blood, plasma, and liver extract. After May 1940, Harry received a psychic boost from living in the White House and dealing with the global crisis. Yet he looked as if he could hardly live, a friend, a friend remembered. A cousin of FDR remarked that often she did not recognize Harry because he's always a different color, sometimes green, sometimes gray, or white, or pink. Yet even when confined to his bed in the Lincoln room, he, was, he lived in the Lincoln bedroom, strewn with papers all over the chairs and on the floor, he could bark orders into the telephone. He conducted meetings in his pajamas. By living in the Lincoln bedroom and being 
uh, not leaving the White House very much, he also escaped reporters while overseeing the massive Lend-Lease operation. Hopkins' unstoppable drive gave his efforts, and by extension, the policies that he fought for, an aura of heroism that enhanced his credibility in wartime. The spectacle of such a fierce personality emanating from a frail body added to his mystique. One Roosevelt insider described Hopkins as six feet and 140 pounds of adrenaline, pure raw guts. Journalists likened him, likened him to an animated piece of shredded wheat. Claire Booth Luce, who hated his liberal politics, marveled that such an intense and ferocious energy could arise from thin, sloping, caved-in chest. Luce also resented him for jilting her friend, the actress Dorothy Hale, who subsequently committed suicide. Luce wondered what this man has that a girl can jump out of a window for him. One of the things that Hopkins did have was that he helped Roosevelt think. Secretary of Labor Francis Perkins observed that Roosevelt would temporarily have flashes, almost clairvoyantly, uh, almost clairvoyant understanding of a variety of matters that didn't seem to have any particular relationship to one another. But this aptitude for knowing all kinds of diverse things together at once in a flash did not stay. It would come and then it would go. In other words, Roosevelt might get the big picture and spark ideas such as the concept of Lend-Lease, but he had problems translating such insight into concrete policies. Hopkins got action. FDR Jr. remembered that Hopkins worked so well with father because father would say, now Harry, get that goddamn thing done. And Harry would have it done in two hours later and follow up with the bureaucracy. Perkins recalled that Hopkins developed this terrific capacity to relate all sorts of unrelated things to a practical central focal point and then go ahead and carry out a project. Churchill famously dubbed him Lord Root of the Matter. Harry could focus on the big picture even when he was watch watchdogging the delivery of thousands of different Lend-Lease items to the Allies. General Marshall appreciated that Hopkins could make FDR understand the military's needs. Contrasting styles separated the buttoned-up military commander from the hedonic ex-social worker. Nevertheless, Marshall, who avoided going to the White House, refused to allow FDR to first name him and visited Hyde Park for the first time at FDR's funeral. Marshall respected Hopkins. Marshall later recalled that whenever I hit a tough spot I could not handle, he and I together would see the president. Marshall also worried about his friend's excessive working and drinking. One Christmas Eve, he wrote, I hope that for once in your life you will be reasonably prudent. Marshall judged that Hopkins had more nerve than anyone I had ever seen. If any man sacrificed his life in this war, he did. He related that shortly before leaving on a diplomatic mission to London, Hopkins was so weak he had to curl up the back stairs at Hyde Park because he was not strong enough to walk up. This so-called assistant president quietly played up that courage when FDR sent him to assess Churchill. In January 1941, as Britain girded for a German invasion, the president needed to, needed to know whether Churchill's rhetoric amounted to more than just words. Would the British actually resist? Hopkins and Churchill did get along very well. Harry was impressed with Churchill's bulldog determination, and he promised to push for full aid. Hopkins' wisecracking nonchalance about his frailty impressed the British, who were worried about the seeming frailty of all the democratic nations. Winston's politically astute wife, Clementine, was a quite critical person, remembered her, her daughter, and yet Harry captivated my mother quite quickly. 
daughter-in-law, Pamela Churchill, later Pamela Harriman, also remember that Harry Hopkins was never a stranger in our family. He was always Harry. At a desperate time, Hopkins brought the promise of material and emotional support. Part of his charm was in appearing both vibrant and frail. Despite his six-foot height, he was remembered by Pamela as small, shrunken, sick. She added, he was always cold. Harry never took off his overcoat. Decades later, Pamela could still see the enormous great overcoat, the battered hat, the battered face. Yet whenever Harry talked about some vital matter, the whole man changed. He became strong. Though concerned friends put him to bed early, Harry often sneaked out the back through a back door and spent the night nightclubbing in, in, in London. He also drank. Pamela Churchill remembered that he never seemed to eat anything. She added in a half-finished sentence, he had the scotch, but he never... In another spectacle of sacrifice, Hopkins flew in a freezing bomber from Britain to Russia a month after the June 1941 German invasion. FDR again needed his judgment. Does Stalin intend to keep fighting? After marathon talks, Hopkins left Moscow clutching 80 pages of notes detailing the dictator's determination. Yet somehow Harry, and I always wonder whether there's something psychological in this, yet somehow Harry left behind his satchel of life-sustaining injections. The Royal Air Force pilot bringing him from, from Moscow back to, uh, to, to, to Scotland reported that Hopkins boarded the boat plane critically ill with great blue circles under, under his eyes. Landing in rough seas off Scotland, the pitching plane risked smashing into the waiting naval launch. Hopkins had to clamber atop the hull of the plane and leap across the water into the arms of seamen on board the ship. His luggage was tossed after him. Observers feared he might die that very night. He looked so bad. Roosevelt, a genius of stage management, probably sensed that Harry's raw courage would resonate with leaders of war-torn London and Moscow. Hopkins' defiance of disability became a metaphor for America's determination to overcome the handicaps of limited weaponry and a population averse to war. Before Pearl Harbor, such symbolism was important in view of FDR's uncertainty in terms of how far and how fast he would move the nation toward war. Despite his efforts, Hopkins' clout, after all, depended on his access to the president, which in turn depended on personal ties. Anna, the daughter of Franklin and Eleanor, who disliked Harry's influence, ruminated about why he remained the favorite. She concluded that the president finds Harry relaxing, and he likes to relax. Roosevelt and Hopkins both enjoyed what Francis Perkins called behind-the-barn jokes. Loud shouts of laughter would rise from the president's study as they competed with each other in telling off-color stories. They apparently also competed in romantic conquest and in telling about them. In 1939, Harry became engaged to the attractive brunette New York actress Dorothy Hale. During the same years, during the same months, during the same months in 1938, FDR was spending weekends at Hyde Park with Dorothy Schiff, who looked remarkably, remarkably like Hale. During that year, Schiff and Roosevelt split the purchase of a Hyde Park uh, farm in which he built his getaway, Top Cottage, and she later built her own cottage. Schiff explained FDR's plan, quote, I was to be sort of a backstreet wife. When Hale plunged to her death after Harry broke off the engagement, FDR, competitive and cold as ever, reportedly told Harry, I hope you won't let this go to your head. There have been far less handsome men than you who have caused the ladies to commit suicide. The president once startled Representative Lyndon B. Johnson by asking him, did you ever see a Russian woman naked? Thrown on the defensive, 
LBJ replied, no, but then again, I've never been to Russia. Roosevelt then related with Harry Hopkins, who had just been who had just visited Stalin, told him about Russian women. After as close as with Hopkins during the war deepened, deepened the divisions between the president and the first lady. By 1944-45, by which time Harry had moved out of the White House, Eeyore no longer desired to fill the gaps in her husband's network. Eeyore felt betrayed by Hopkins, who had started out as a fellow reformer. She had favored him for president in 1938-39. She arranged to care for, and actually become the uh, guardian of, Harry's young daughter Diana if Harry should die. Hopkins had cultivated ER, and he admitted this later, he had cultivated ER to get closer to FDR. Once in the White House, however, Harry sided with the president and focused only on the war. The former head of the WPA now complained about those goddamn New Dealers. When Perkins suggested to ER that FDR needed her and that she should stay around the White House more, ER replied in a hurt tone, oh no, he doesn't need me anymore, he has Harry. He doesn't ask my advice, he doesn't ask me for advice anymore. Harry tells him everything he needs to know. With the demands of the war, FDR depended more than ever on the so-called assistant president. Harry, Harry, recalled, Harry recalled evening after evening when Franklin was left entirely alone except for him. Feeling the strain, the hedonists escaped to New York City in Long Island some weekends. For FDR, relaxation was limited to sorting stamps telling old stories, gossip, poker, fishing, and making cocktails, some of them weird concoctions. Hopkins grew, grew bored with this routine. He enjoyed socializing with the rich, such as John Hertz, who founded the Yellow Cab Company, and also the Hertz Rental Companies, and who raised horses. FDR Jr. remembered that father used to get very, very upset if Harry got away for a weekend, the fast life. A jealous president would josh him pretty strongly. Well, now that you've finished being a playboy around New York, are you ready to get back to work? Stresses mounted after Harry married Louise Macy on the 30th of July, 1942. FDR informed ER by telephone that the newlyweds would be living in the White House. Louise, who's Harry's new bride, formerly a fashion writer in Paris, relished the glamour. Yet she didn't understand politics. She really didn't understand world affairs, her stepdaughter, Diana, recalled. Nor did Louise appreciate FDR's demands. From her honeymoon, Louise instructed the president, try not to send for Harry too soon, but, I know you, but you know I'll understand if you must. Not very many people addressed FDR in the imperative voice. In support of the war, Louise worked in a Washington hospital. Diana, the daughter, remembered, mommy would get home from the hospital and there would be a message that the president wants you to go to tea with Princess Martha. Now, Princess Martha was a very attractive young Norwegian princess who uh, came to Washington uh, during the war years and who lived a little bit outside of Bethesda. The president wants you to go to tea with Princess Martha. Now, no time to get out of the uniform, nothing. And zap, off to Princess Martha's house. Princess Martha would say, Louise, why don't you go and see the children? And so Louise would go and see the children, and the president and Princess Martha would have tea. As the glamour paled, Louise drank more heavily, and, and not tea. She challenged Eleanor over meals and guests. Despite these tensions, however, the joint household managed to hold together from July 42 to December 43. Living under the same roof helped Roosevelt and Hopkins plan for the November 43 summit at Tehran. At the conference, Roosevelt and Stalin sketched the rough outline of a post-war accord. Germany would be, would be invaded from east and west, 
then divided and prevented from making war. Russia would join in defeating and policing Japan. The junior partners, Britain and China, would police their respective beats. Trusteeships would facilitate gradual decolonization while soothing the pride of losers such as France with multinational sovereignty over colonies and strategic locations. Although Stalin's strategic focus was on land and Roosevelt's largely on the sea and air, they both talked in terms of strategic strong points, strategic strong points, such as Poland and Dakar and the West African bulge. Such strong points offered a conceptual framework and potentially a realpolitik alliance that linked Roosevelt's hemispheric and global concerns with Stalin's regional aim to keep Germany down and Poland in friendly hands. This vision, however, remained seriously undeveloped. How would the big four get control over and set up these trusty territories and the strategic strong points? Could the big power collaboration overcome the obstacles to setting up a post-war Poland that would in fact be both friendly toward Russia and reasonably democratic? Flexibility and alliance relations declined as victory approached. In the first half of 1944, Churchill and Roosevelt were pressing the London Poles to settle with Stalin. While Stalin was telling the pro-Soviet group, the Lublin Poles, that post-war Poland had to ally with Britain and America as well as Poland, as well as Russia. At Tehran, Hopkins and the British and Soviet foreign ministers discussed how to organize the strategic strong points. Although they made some progress, much more needed to be done. Unfortunately for any chance of developing this post-war strategy, however, soon after Tehran, Hopkins moved out of the White House and then was hospitalized. He never regained FDR's full confidence, nor his commitment to, F to Roosevelt's vision. And Roosevelt had no one else at his side with Hopkins' talent, experience, and understanding. The result, that was, that, the result was that rapidly moving events soon spun out of the ability of Roosevelt or of the big three together to control. Of course, such direction may have faulted even with Hopkins and Roosevelt in top form. Well, Roosevelt at Tehran dubbed the big three the family circle, his own family circle was falling apart. The domestic intimacy that facilitated preparation for Tehran also raised tensions. Speechwriter Sam Rosenman recalled that the president wanted someone at the White House whom he could talk to at breakfast before going to bed. He wanted Harry around. Louise complained to her sister, can you imagine, Gert, never having breakfast with your own husband? The sister observed that Louise was jealous of FDR in the intimacy which he shared with Harry. As Harry wasted away, Louise blamed his boss. Diana remembered her stepmother saying, Roosevelt drove him and drove him and drove him and thought he would get out of bed and do something else. Years later, she and Diana argued about Roosevelt. Uh, uh, Louise would charge, how can you like the man? He killed your father. Louise raised tensions by mocking the president and the first lady while they were living in the White House. Rosamond remembered, we used to have dinner with Harry and Louise, and the latter, with a couple of drinks in her, would talk about Eleanor in a way that caused me to wish that she would lower her voice. <clears throat> in December 43, Louise took the initiative, and the family moved from the White House to Georgetown. <clears throat> FDR felt abandoned. There was a coolness then that developed then between Harry and FDR, Rosamond remembered. The coolness deepened after Hopkins collapsed on New Year's Day and was hospitalized until late summer 1944. In a presidency that pivoted on proximity, Harry felt outside the inner circle and exposed to bureaucratic attack. Rumors circulated that he, had that he had grown too partial to Churchill. Dropping his flippant attitude toward his illness, he confessed that it has been difficult for me to bounce back this time. Facing his own mortality, Hopkins grew desperate. It had never been easy serving FDR, who expected much, rarely said thanks, and teased mercilessly. 
Harry told an aide sorting his papers. I want the whole story note, including the fact that I had very uh, large political ambitions. Having caught the presidential bug, he never gave it up, Cochran uh, explained. The man who had always loved loved gambling at the track and at cards tossed his remaining chips into the game. Although doctors remained hesitant about the surgery, Harry really pushed for radical surgery. He bet on a life-altering operation. In the operating room, he wisecracked, open me up. Maybe you'll find the answer to the fourth term, or maybe not. The The surgery achieved nothing positive, but it required a long recuperation. An even more desperate man emerged from the hospital in the summer of 44. Determined to make the most of his remaining time in every way, he periodically binged on alcohol and on rich food, despite the consequences. With Hopkins out of the White House, the boss could no longer hammer out decisions over a poker game. When asked who was advising her father, Anna threw her hands into the air and said, I don't know, no one. Though Though not curing Hopkins, hospitalization had soured him. He emerged less deferential toward FDR, less tolerant of FDR's foibles, and less committed to FDR's post-war vision. He also grew suspicious that Louise was cheating on him. He asked his friend, J. Edgar Hoover, to have FBI agents tail his wife and transcribe the conversations on the Hopkins family telephone. Those transcripts provide historians with a window onto Harry's growing divergence from FDR's foreign policy vision. In 1940-43, Hopkins had been a dynamo in the war effort. By 44-45, he lacked the energy, expertise, and closeness with FDR to mold the latter's notions into concrete policies. Clementine Churchill lamented the political fallout. Harry seems to have quite dropped out of the picture. The intimacy has ended, and I cannot but feel that this is a disaster to the Anglo-American relationship. Though he never regained intimacy with FDR, Hopkins did re-enter the scene in October 44. Opportunity came on the eve of Churchill's meeting with Stalin as the president prepared to send a telegram absolving himself from any possible deal in Eastern Europe. Significantly, it was the Russian expert Charles Chip Bolin who brought the issue to Hopkins and shaped his reaction. Hopkins warned FDR that Churchill would claim to be speaking on the president's behalf. At Harry's urging, FDR sent Stalin a quite different message, a famous message, which FDR told Stalin, quote, there is, there is in this global war literally no question, either political or military, in which the United States is not engaged. While affirming, while affirming Roosevelt's independence, the statement also staked out global interests. Stalin probably wondered precisely how the United States intended to be engaged in Eastern Europe. Limited U.S. ambitions in Eastern Europe did not necessarily portend conflict, however, since Stalin preferred, as he repeatedly said, he preferred a three policemen alliance to contain Germany after the war rather than a rigid division between East and West. In contrast to happier days when the two men mixed work with fun over meals, Hopkins from September 44 to April 45 when Roosevelt died, they dined only once at the White House on March 2nd. He no longer accompanied his old friend to Hyde Park or Warm Springs on weekends. Things were kept cool by lingering resentments by FDR and by Louise, who two days after FDR's death described the president as nutty about some fool dog. Yet Hopkins retained influence as the one insightful problem solver who complemented Roosevelt's mode of thinking and operation. Roosevelt's need for assistance opened space for someone with the expertise and charm of Chip Bolin. Both Harry and FDR enjoyed having Bolin around. Bolin had interpreted between Roosevelt and Stalin at Tehran. 
Though still a State Department official, Boland worked out of a White House office with Hopkins. The Bolandses were old friends of Louise Hopkins and her husband, uh, Louise, Hopkins and her, uh, Louise Hopkins' sister. The Bolands were friends of Louise Hopkins' sister. His rise, Boland's rise brought back into the White House the viewpoints of uh, veteran diplomats such as George Kennan, William Bullitt, and Avril Harriman, men who had been soured by their personal experiences and political experience in Moscow. By tapping Boland's expertise on Russia, Hopkins expected to enhance his own influence, his lagging influence with the president. Yet Hopkins was also tapping into the State Department's deep-seated skepticism of cooperation with the Kremlin. A friend remembered that Harry took a fancy to Boland, believing he was entirely different from anybody else in the State Department. Well, actually, Boland was not that different. Shortly before the February 45 Yalta Conference, Boland and Hopkins flew to London to calm Churchill, who was furious at U.S. criticism of his brutal actions in Greece. The long trip bonded the two Americas. Chip is tremendous, and at the moment we are sharing quarters, Harry informed Louise. We have become fast friends, and I admire him ever so much. Hopkins, who in December 41 had professed indifference if, must have, if much of Eastern Europe became communist, was now tutored by Boland on the importance of the ideological factor in Soviet thinking, unquote. Roosevelt, meanwhile, reached the island of Malta in the Mediterranean the morning of 2nd February. This is before, a couple days before Yalta, expecting help from Hopkins. Harry, however, was laid low by continuous dysentery. He joked that he'd been all right until he had visited the Pope. The Secretary of State told Anna, who was along, Anna Rosa was there on the trip, a different story. Harry has been drinking far too much. That evening, Harry knocked at Anna's door and demanded a drink. When she turned her back, he, he stole her last bottle of scotch. Advised he had only bland cereal, the fool had two huge helpings of caviar, cabbage soup with sour cream, and then a cereal, a friend observed. The first night at Yalta, Harry, in a stew, insisted to Anna that FDR must see Churchill in the morning for a long meeting to dope out how the Americans and British would lead the conference. Churchill, Eden, the foreign secretary, and probably Boland had been arguing this case to Hopkins for days. Though Roosevelt would meet with Stalin, with Stalin privately on the first day of the conference, he put Churchill off until later. When Anna explained that, that the president did not intend to risk, risk the Russians' distrust, Hopkins countered with insulting remarks to the effect that, after all, FDR had asked for this job, and now, whether he liked it or not, he had to do the work. This is a quote from Anna's diary. Intensely uncomfortable, Hopkins had now developed an immunity to his anti-dysentery medicine. He also seemed intensely frustrated. His astonishing comment that, after all, FDR had asked for this job seemed an eruption of ego and resentment. After years of sacrifice for the president, he, Harry, whose brains and drive had helped Roosevelt into greatness, he, Harry, would never get this job for himself. He would never satisfy his urge to dominate, rule, and give orders, not take them, as a psychoanalyst had uh, described him years earlier. Hopkins was arguing for what would become a pattern in the Cold War. According to Harry's logic, the only way Roosevelt could act responsibly, do the work as he put it, was to exclude the Russians by agreeing with Churchill on some prearrangements before the conference started. During the Yalta conference, Harry remained so sick that he rose out of bed only for the plenary sessions and for a few dinners. Yalta produced agreements that, that basically recognized the predominance of the Americans, Soviets, and British in their respective spheres. FDR hoped for a gradual transition to a more multilateral world. To make this deal more palatable to public opinion, Yalta also, also 
Yalta also endorsed in a toothless way the democratic principles of the Atlantic Charter. Roosevelt pondered how he was going to sell this, all, to sell all this to the American people. Four years earlier, Roosevelt and Hopkins had devised the policy and publicity for another hard sell, Lendlease, while cruising aboard the USS Tuscaloosa. Now FDR needed Harry's talents to craft in crafting a more difficult pitch. The voyage home on the Quincy afforded the chance to relax and write a report to Congress. Hopkins, however, again disappointed. After the conference adjourned, Harry, despite feeling weak, stayed up all night playing poker and then took to his bed. He holed up in his cabin until the Quincy docked at Algiers. Then he disembarked and flew home with Bowen. FDR complained, why did Harry have to get sick on me? Harry's son, Robert, who was a photographer at Yalta, later recalled that the president was good and mad, so much so that he didn't say goodbye to Hopkins, refused to say goodbye to Hopkins. Without Hopkins or Boland to help him pull a rabbit out of a hat, FDR lapsed into procrastination in terms of writing the speech. The two old friends met one last time on the 2nd of March. They did not reconcile. FDR could famously hold a grudge for decades. Then Harry went off to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, depressed that his White House career was over. But I'm not yet quite over. After taking his oath as, as president on 7 or 9 p.m. on 12 April 1945, Harry S. Truman looked around the room and said, where's Harry Hopkins? The new president needed a crash course in Roosevelt's foreign policy. Feeling useless, Hopkins was sinking in body and spirit. So low he's a goner, so low he's a goner, feared Louise. It was not the White House staff or the Roosevelt family that informed him of uh, Roosevelt's death, but rather Boland. Harry defied his doctors and flew immediately to Washington to pay respects to his old friend. Hopkins also focused on the new president. When the British ambassador commiserated that the death must be a shock to Harry, Louise replied that despite the trauma to the country, Harry takes things like this very well. Much of his melancholy had stemmed, stemmed from his fall from power. Hopkins was delighted then when Truman called on the 13th of April to invite him the next morning for a chat in the White House. The heady elixir of the White House worked some of the magic that it had done in May 1940 when he had moved into the Lincoln bedroom. Describing her husband after the meeting with Truman, Louise enthused, every inch of that man is better, not only in color and looks, but in enthusiasm and interest. Most Roosevelt insiders had difficulty in accepting Truman as president. I know he is decent, allowed Harold Dickus, but can anyone mention any other attributes? <laughs> Hopkins, in contrast, found the new boss a wonderful person. In subsequent days, Harry conferred with Washington officials, especially Boland. As for booze, he hasn't had a sip. He doesn't miss it, Louise gushed. Rivalry more than illness limited the comeback of Harry Hopkins. Harriman later noted that Truman had never felt entirely comfortable with Hopkins. Jimmy Burns, who flew to Truman's side after Truman side after FDR died, faulted Hopkins for having soured Roosevelt on Burns' own possible 1944 nomination as vice president. Long Truman's mentor in the Senate, Burns would not tolerate such competition in the new administration. The first full day of the new administration, someone from the White House, perhaps Burns or Truman himself, informed the British Embassy that Churchill should no longer take up matters with Harry Hopkins as in, as in the past. Churchill should go instead directly to President Truman. Hopkins hit back, no doubt echoing, echoing her husband, Louise Mock Burns, soon to be appointed Secretary of State, for acting like a perfect moron for, by strutting about as a presidential advisor. 
Even before Rosa was buried in his grave, she complained, Burns was again angling, was, Burns was angling for position. So was her husband, who lost out. Truman would soon relegate him to elder statesman, excluded from the inner circle, but nevertheless tapped for advice and for a critical mission to Moscow. The demotion did not cause the new administration to shift away from Roosevelt's policy, excuse me, to shift, shift away from Roosevelt's priority of collaboration with the Soviets. Rather, Hopkins endorsed that change. A famous moment in that shift came on the 23rd of April when Truman sharply lectured Molotov that the Russians were violating the Yalta Accord on Poland. Sensing that this dust-up could prove pivotal, Boland and Secretary of State Ed Stettinius sought Hopkins' blessing. Louise told a friend that the minute they finish with Molotov, they end up at this house, and they have a long talk about what's what. Apparently, Hopkins approved. Louise reported, Truman really and truly stood up for the United States today with Molotov, which is good, I think. Her words really and truly suggested that her husband, whom she instinctively followed on political issues, endorsed Truman's forcefulness. Stood up for the United States implied criticism of FDR's past policy, as had the discussion among Truman's advisors earlier that afternoon. The ambivalence of the phrase, which is good, I think, May indicate, may indicate that while Harry approved Truman's tough tone, the change remained surprising. Or perhaps Louise lagged behind Harry in adjusting to the new disposition. By late May 1945, relations with, relations with Russia were deteriorating rapidly. There was open talk of war. Even Harriman and Boland, who had urged a tougher stance, grew worried. They overcame Truman's resistance to, to sending Hopkins on a mission to Moscow. Eager to get back into harness, Hopkins agreed to go. Although the mission, this mission is often de depicted as the last act of Roosevelt's diplomacy, what Harry told Stalin actually fit the first act of Truman's foreign policy. Hopkins largely echoed the views of Harriman and Boland who accompanied him on the trip. Roosevelt had regarded the issue of Poland's borders and Poland's government as important primarily because of the impact, their impact on American opinion and on his ability to get a peace treaty through the Senate. Even in angry telegrams to Stalin in the month before he died, Roosevelt never made Polish issues the decisive touchstone of U.S.-Soviet cooperation. Yet in talking with Stalin, Hopkins repeated four times, four times, that Poland was, quote, the symbol of our ability to work out problems with the Soviet Union. At stake in Poland, he stressed, was the fundamental relationship between Washington and Moscow. Harriman reported to, to Truman that Harriman reported to Truman that Harry did a first-rate job in presenting your views. Hopkins would nonetheless remain just a messenger boy unless he came home with a deal. A deal requires some Rooseveltian compromising. Stalin agreed to allow a few independent Poles to join the pro-Soviet Warsaw government. In return, Washington, Hopkins suggested, would recognize that government. Hopkins urged Truman and Churchill to accede to this deal. The dictator sweetened things by conceding that the veto in the UN Security Council should pertain only to action, not to discussion. The package replicated the Yalta pattern of Soviet concessions on structuring of the UN in return for US acquiescence on Poland. Hopkins arrived home with a deal. Despite the rigors of the long trip, and the flying was, was, was really rigorous in those days, despite the rigors of the long trip, Harry has gained eight pounds and is looking well and feeling grand, Louise told a friend once they got home. Truman concurred. Hopkins is looking better than when, than when he left here. Challenge had invigorated the old warhorse. Despite the success, however, Hop Harry could not surmount the opposition of his rival. Probably forced out by Burns, 
He resigned from the government service on the 5th of July, 1945, two days after Burns became Secretary of State. Hopkins shifted energies toward writing a book about himself and Roosevelt. He confided, I'm anxious to sell, before the, way before the book was written, I'm anxious to sell the movie rights because I need some cash very badly. But he made little progress. In November of 1945, he checked into a hospital in New York City. Even hospitalized, he remained, at least in spirit, the man about town. I'm more or less using this place as a hotel, he boasted. Louise and I are going to the theater on Friday. But illness, bad habits, and disappointment finally caught up with him, and he died on the 30th of January, 1946. At the memorial service, the actor Burgess Meredith, reading a memorial written by John Steinbeck, eulogized Hopkins as part of the leadership that had rescued the nation from depression and foreign attack. Hopkins' ties with Roosevelt illustrates that at pivotal times, individuals with their distinctive personalities, skills, and problems can affect the ties of history. At its best, the Hopkins-Roosevelt Association helped the boss become a great leader. At its worst, both men sabotaged the relationship. Harry's sickness and shift toward Boland limited Roosevelt's ability to prepare for the post-war era. As Walter Lippmann observed, when Hopkins was there with Roosevelt, decisions went well and, and toward good results. When he was absent, things went all to pieces. Because of his personality, habits of thought, and physical limitations, Roosevelt needed to work with someone talented, close by, and relaxing. His most valuable aides, Louis Howe, Macy LeHand, and Hopkins, were alike in that they all had lived in the White House in their day, helped him, helped him, helped him mix work with pleasure, and were themselves both gifted and differently able in some way. What I mean by differently able is having some potentially disabling condition that one can transform into extraordinary ability. Harry helped counter FDR's tendency to procrastinate. He turned FDR's airy notions into workable policies and helped ram them through Congress and the bureaucracy. Years later, Anna Roosevelt commented that both her parents leaned heavily on aides who lived with them. Eleanor and Franklin simply assumed that these helpers would be available 24-7, that they would sacrifice their personal lives for service to the Roosevelts. One of the weaknesses of FDR's presidency is that he wore out people like Hopkins and LeHand and that he proved unable to enlist others in their place. Franklin Roosevelt was beloved by millions, yet in his last years he appeared to a close observer as the loneliest man in the world. Thank you. So we have time for questions, comments. Was there an autopsy? No, uh, on, on Roosevelt? <laughs> well, it's been on some people. Um, Actually, there was no, I don't think it was an autopsy on, I don't think, I don't, there may have been an autopsy on, on Hopkins because actually there, there was some later, I think there was because there, the medical reports referred to piece of his, piece, you know, slices of his liver. So I guess that there was, there was an autopsy. Uh, on Roosevelt, there was no autopsy. Eleanor specifically specified there should not be an autop autopsy. Interestingly, the Russians, who feared that FDR had been poisoned, asked for an autopsy. They, they suggested an autopsy, but there was no autopsy. Well, Roosevelt didn't need an autopsy. Uh, there was no question about his medical condition. Harry Hopkins had no diagnosis that you've mentioned. Well, actually, people have, actually, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a medical historian, but, um, but the medical aspects of Harry Hopkins are paramount here. Well, they are, but I mean, I think one of the things, okay, um, let, let me give you a little bit of history here. Um, after, after Roosevelt, uh, after Hopkins died, um, 
Dr. Halstead, who later married Anna Roosevelt, and after Anna Roosevelt died, married Diane Hopkins. Um, Halstead uh, was the doctor, and he, he studied the question of what, what, it, what was wrong with Harry Hopkins. And he concluded, he concluded that Hopkins had sprue. Yes. Okay. Um, and, That's the gluten story. Okay. And then there's the question of the cirrhosis of the liver. Uh, he, he, he believed that Harry, that the alcohol had not influenced the cirrhosis of the liver. But I think that Halstead was somewhat biased. The test, there's testimony of, of other people that, of, about Harry's binge drinking. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, no, I don't know if he was Cushing Gates because, again, he married Anna Roosevelt, and then Diane Hopkins. Right, right. And Sprue could have easily been misinterpreted that way. Right. I would suggest that unless there's additional information, there's a lot of misconception about the medical condition of this man in which, in whom the medical condition was almost more important than anything else. Right, right. Uh, can we talk more about this? I mean, I want to continue this because it's very, very interesting. So, so you think that, um, okay, so you're saying he didn't have cancer because if he had cancer, he wouldn't have continued living. Right. And that, and, and was the sprue then present before 37, or is this something developed as a result of his well, losing his stomach? It's a strange diagnosis, and it's probably a very, uh, um, it, it is a, uh, a form of avitaminosis related to an inability to digest certain things and right. to have the enzymes in the stomach operate properly. Right. Because of the stomach surgery, I'm not sure what the reason for the enzyme deficiency would have been. It could have been many reasons, but he was a candidate for a lot of different And would the autopsy would have shown right, cirrhosis right, of the liver, right. but it wouldn't have explained these other things. Right, right. The, I, I, yeah. the autopsy report right. and the name 
aspects of history, it's the people who make the difference. Right. Now that's fascinating. Would he have been kept alive by the transfus transfusions? I mean, were they, you well, think, he affected? Probably contained nutrients that yeah. he wasn't getting otherwise. So I would suspect the transfusions weren't giving him blood necessarily, but they were giving him serum that had nutrients in it. And liver extract. Whatever, in, in whatever. Right, 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 right. Well, thank you. Well, let's continue this. Paul may not know as much as he needs to about his medical condition, but we do know that he went from being a social worker to being a first-class line on foreign affairs. What accounts for that? <coughs> he also tackled a lot of other problems. <coughs> he was a social worker, Mr., and then became a, uh, <coughs> excuse me, a person who dealt, ran the WPA. So... Uh, <coughs> I mean, I think as, as <clears throat> people have said, FDR, uh, Harry Hopkins could get into a new situation, appraise it, and was great at seeing what, what, what are the essentials here? How are the power, how are the power relationships? Did he read uh, <clears throat> I don't think so. You know, he did read, but I don't think he read, you know, was a person who was a voracious reader. Or a diplomat who can forget sending the sites and all these other fine <laughs> right. right people. Right. <laughs> right. So he was really good at appraising a new situation and, and trying to figure out what, what was going on. He also, was, also had very good people skills. Yeah. You mentioned that he was in the military and how yeah. pivotal he was in the success of the war. Did he have any military training? And did he just pick that up? Oh, not, none at all. None at all. I mean, in fact, he, um, you know, the idea of him becoming president in 1940 was pretty kind of dicey. <clears throat> um, in fact, there was a lot of opposition when he was nominated to be Secretary of Commerce because, because he, he, was, he was a socialist. I mean, he denied it, but it's pretty clear record that he was a socialist in 1915, 1916. So, um, and he was also, he was one of the people who opposed U.S. entry into World War I initially. So, no, he didn't serve in the military in World War I. But again, he, he was the kind of person who could assess what the problem was and figure out how to, how to, how to, how to deal with it. And certainly, uh, Marshall depended on, on him enormously. And other, I just mentioned Marshall, but there are other people, uh, Stark in the Navy and other people, depended on Hopkins for his influence with the president. So for purely diplomatic reasons, he wasn't necessarily a, a tactician? <clears throat> no, but he, well, I mean, you needed to get into the tactics. You needed to get into the details and the strategy to cope with things. And, and certainly, <clears throat> excuse me, um, Hopkins, you know, was sent to England several times to negotiate with, with, with Churchill on, on issues of the Second Front. So he had to get into those details. He was a person who really, you know, I think um, intellectually could grasp a situation, as I've said this several times, could grasp a situation and figure out, okay, how do we organize this? What do we do? Who's going to do what job? And what are the essentials of this, getting things done? Um, regardless of the, of the details, he, he was a person who could get the big picture. And then also tackled the details. I mean, he was really a very extremely capable person, which is why Roosevelt used him in so many different capacities. Yeah. <clears throat> to reinforce the sense of yeah. the two previous comments, I think you need some uh, more serious discussion about United States personnel. Did you ever read a book on Russia, Germany, France, Poland? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I... Okay, right, right, right. You know, I've not. You know, I've read. A, I've read quite a bit about Harry Hopkins, and, and and there's a unpublished biography. There's a lot of the medical stuff in an unpublished biography that was done by Halstead, and um, and June Hopkins is um, Harry's uh, uh, daughter. Um, 
And, but I don't find records of people saying, you know, Harry was spending a lot of time reading. Um, he read reports, obviously he had to read reports, memos, and so forth, but he was not a person who, who um, read a lot of books. Maybe there's a lesson there, I don't know. <laughs> Molly? Well, I sort of get the sense that, yeah, he's not spending his time reading books, he's spending his time talking to people. Right, right. That's true. That's true. As a lot of as a lot of policymakers are briefed orally more than more than reading stuff. As, as FDR also should have. Right. 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 Needed him there at breakfast. Right. So he can be talking to him, him all day long. And right. I'm right. fascinated by that notion of sort of an, uh, an artificial family that FDR gathers <coughs> around him. And, and, and brings with him. And brings with him everywhere right. he goes. I mean, right. Did you all to Tehran and every place? Yeah. Right, because there's so many demands in there. You need to have people you can depend on yeah. in all kinds of ways. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to I hear your sort of overall assessment <clears throat> about why the estrangement between Hopkins and FDR happened. And it seems like in, in the talk, you could tell sort of three synthesized stories that um, there was a divergence in strategic views um, in terms of the Soviet <clears throat> Well, I, I think there's another factor that's kind of implicated in the things you said that, that I would, you know, I think, above all, I'd say that Harry, Harry Hopkins was more a tactician than a strategist. I think, above all, Harry Hopkins loved exercising power, above all, and exercising power through Roosevelt, through Truman, through whomever. I think that was the number one thing was, was, was exercising power. <clears throat> um, that's one element, and so, and I think the Roosevelt. I mean, it's Roosevelt had a family near near, but he also wore out people because of the the the, uh, the enormity of the demands Roosevelt put on the people around him. And Roosevelt, you know, was was a very big person in many many ways, and also a very small person. I mean, like emotionally small person in ways. And when Hopkins moved out of the White House. Um, but I guess, you know, and it's, it's a way it's incredible that he did move out, but I guess Louise certainly wanted to move out of the White House. There was a lot of tension there, and somehow she convinced, Louise convinced Harry that they, they were going to leave the White House. When Roosevelt, this is the turning point. This is the turning point, because they're close to Tehran. They have strategic visions, the same personal, you know, things are working the same. When, when Hopkins moved out of the White House in December of 43, Roosevelt basically cut him off. And I, I say that because that's that example. But there are other examples of people who, with whom Roosevelt was very close. And particularly when there's signif the, the significant others, mostly spouses, of these aides got in the way, Roosevelt wouldn't tolerate that. He really wouldn't tolerate that. I mean, he broke with Tommy Corcoran over Corcoran's 
insistence in marrying a woman that uh, the Roosevelt didn't approve of. Uh, Louis Howe visited his wife only occasionally when he was, when he was working for Roosevelt. Michel Han didn't allow, Ro didn't um, let Roosevelt know the most significant person she, she was involved with for years. Um, Roosevelt wanted to be first in the hearts of his countrymen, first in the hearts of, of, of his aides. And when, when Hopkins moved out of the White House, that Roosevelt cut him off at that point. Then I think things flowed from that. Then I think things flowed from that. And Hopkins, you know, also again, Hopkins' frustration with realizing he was never going to become president or even close to that. And, and then again, Boland was you know, extremely charming, very intelligent. Uh, he had this personal connection through, um, through Louise Hopkins. Uh, and Boland was very ambitious and, 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 and attained more and more influence. So I, that's how I would see that it works out. Mitch? I think of FDR much in the way that I think of LBJ, that particularly when it came to foreign <coughs> policy, they tend to make up their own minds and then go through, in some cases, a, a sham of an act in sitting down with others and pretending yeah. to listen to their advice. To what extent here, then, might we speculate that that Hopkins influence was, that Hopkins didn't necessarily influence policy directly as much as he was there to sort of reinforce decisions that had already been made. And to carry them out. I mean, again, get the, he's the yeah. details man. You know, right. uh, so he put them into play more so than help shape the I, I agree. That, that's, that's the way I see it. As, as FDR Jr. put it, uh, FDR would say, okay, work that out, do that. I, Hopkins, you know, Roosevelt, Roosevelt was not a details man. Um, and you know, famously was was lacking when it, when it came to really that kind of thing. That's why they were such an effective team. Peter, yeah. Um, my question was a follow-up to the previous one. It had to do more with the Truman period. Yeah. Was, was there any reasonable prospect of Hopkins getting a higher office under Truman? Or I think Hopkins thought so. He thought so. I mean, it's stuff I didn't include in the paper. He thought so. He wanted that. I don't, no, I don't think it's a policy difference at all. I think it's Burns. I think Burns, who, you have to remember, also this is the period when Burns is maneuvering to become Secretary of State. There had been a certain amount of tension between Burns and, and Truman with regard to all the fallout from the 1944 convention. Uh, Burns thought he was the one who should have been uh, nominated for, for Vice President. When FDR dies, that becomes, you know, that much more of a difficulty. And of course, that problem between Burns and Truman leads to their breaking, uh, famously in, in early 1946, and, and Burns then dropped, a year later dropped as Secretary of State. So I, I, I think there's that kind of uh, incipient tension between Burns and Truman, which it makes Burns very, very concerned not to allow Hopkins to gain an important position in the administration. And it's, I think it's also the case, <clears throat> Harriman referred to Truman never quite trusting Hopkins, Harriman was referring to the period during the war when Truman was head of the Truman Committee and Hopkins had, had uh, Truman felt that Hopkins had kind of disdained him. And Truman was always sensitive to people who didn't respect him enough as, as he thought he should be respected. So I think that, right, so all those factors are in there. But, but Hopkins certainly wanted to have, maybe if not a, you know, not to be named Secretary of State, I don't mean a position like that, but to have a strong role uh, and, and the White House inner circle, he expected to, for that to continue. And as I've tried to indicate here, I think the fascinating evidence from these telephone transcripts of Louise Hopkins is that Harry, his, his health, although there were all these difficulties, was, they were also, his health seemed to be influenced by his access to power was, was the best kind of transfusion he could have. 
and he came back from Moscow looking better than before he left. Think about Dick Cheney, right? There's a person who had health problems, four heart attacks before he became vice president, and he's basically okay for the four to eight years. Let me go back to how Hoffman's gets his information. You mentioned at one point in your speech that he had he was in his room surrounded by papers. And that suggests that he either had access to a staff or had access to the kind of products that the staff produced. Do you know anything about that? Well he has a, he has a staff. He does have a staff. He has a small, relatively small staff, but he's he's at the he's at the top of the whole Lendlease operation, which becomes a huge, and many many bureaucrats working on working on that. And he has two or three people under him who feed information up up to him. So he might have gotten a lot of information through staff. Right, right, right. Which you certainly needed. Lendlease is not just on Lendlease, right. but on foreign affairs. Right. Well, that, that's a very good question. Actually, I deal with that in the, in the uh, chapter that I circulate around it. For those people who are going to be at the seminar, we can talk about that. Um, okay. Those letters, most of them are March and April, 19, March and early April 1945. Letters from, from they're, they're really telegrams. Not all of which Harriman actually sent to Roosevelt, but he sent some of them to Roosevelt. Uh, Hopkins is, is out of the picture. He's out of the picture. Um, he, come, he comes back from Yalta. He arrives something like February 27th, 28th, and meets with F, FDR briefly March 2nd. There's no evidence that they talked about policy very much. And then he's off to the Mayo Clinic. So he's, out of the, he's not on the scene when, when Harriman is trying to influence Roosevelt in that direction. Other questions? Yeah. Well, maybe they maybe they complement each other. Serious, I don't, I don't mean that. You know, maybe they complement each other as a person who's kind of, you know, person who 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 likes fast living, fast decisions. Somebody who who's, you know, if you, I, you know, I don't I don't play the horses, but I imagine you have to look at a whole range, of, a whole range of possibilities and assess. Okay, what's important here? You have to assess a whole range of possibilities, decide what's important here, and make a judgment. 
I, I think that's, that probably carries over into other areas of, of you know, the, although he, did, he, did, he lost a lot of times on the horses, so maybe yeah. that's it. <laughs> and he did die. Yeah, he did die. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it, that continues, as Peter said. Do you think that, that, that continues on? Oh, I think so. I, I think, you know, I guess every, obviously every president has his or her, so for his own personality, uh, and they use their aides differently. But it, it, every, there's a story like this surrounding every president. We could all think of the people immediately who, around each president. I mean, first of all, you need people like that. You need people like that. And, and um, yeah, it, it's. I mean, look, every person, not just president, but everybody comes to the, rises to the top of any organization has lots and lots of people that they depend on. And also lots and lots of people often that they've crushed in one way or another. They've worn out, used up, aids that they've used up and as they continue rising to the top. I think have, things have changed. I mean, one of the things I think this changed is that, that Harry was basically subsidized by people in a position that, you know, you think there's a huge amount of conflict of interest here. And in fact, but this went on. I mean, Hopkins, um, it was, yeah, it was Hopkins. Yeah, Hopkins, this is in Harold Dickus's diary, unpublished Harold Dickus's diary. Hopkins said in 1939 that, partly in reference to all the shenanigans of the Roosevelt children, grown children, basically wheeling, dealing on the basis of their name. Uh, Hopkins said in 1939, they thought it would be a miracle if FDR could complete the second term without some kind of big public scandal arising from all, all these. So I think the, the standards then were much looser than they are today with regard to conflict of interest and, and scandals. And, yet, and also, as you know, famously, you know, all the things the F, uh, JFK got away with the standards of what the press reports and, and the line between public, the public life of the president and the private life of the president, that has that all changed night and day uh, since the 1960s, certainly. Yeah, no, but it was all, you know, but it, right, but I mean, Right. Uh, but they tend to need these people 24-7, which is why they burn out so quick. It, you know, as Hopkins experienced in May of 1940, it's really exhilarating at first. Right. But after three years, it's like, do I have a life too? Right. Uh, that's what's going on. Right. And I, and I imagine spouses play a really significant role, whether a person can keep up that, that job or not. Did you mention or reference some source from psychoanalysis of Hopkins? Yeah, 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 yeah. This is something I found in, um, yeah, it, it was something in, in the, uh, there's, there's Harry Hopkins papers at the FDR Library, and there's Harry Hopkins papers at Georgetown that are really the papers, the ones at Georgetown are really the papers of 
Robert Hopkins. They're, they're mostly letters from Robert, from, from Harry to Robert. And they're more personal. But also in there is a, um, the report of a, an analyst, a psychoanalyst who analyzed Harry Hopkins in 1934. So that's what that quote was from. And it's a long thing. It's like, I can send these. It's like a two-page analysis of his personality. Yeah, he was. Yeah, right, right. Which was, yeah, right. And that was part of Harry being kind of a man about town, kind of a, you know, new age guy of the 20s and 30s. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was definitely. It was definitely. Well, this was, for, actually, I found this on Google. I mean, I just, <laughs> I, I Googled Louise Hopkins. And, it, you know, how you Google different times, you get different things. Well, one, other times I wasn't, wasn't able to get, but it was a reference to microfilm reels that are, it's called J. Edgar Hoover's Confidential Files. And there, there are many reels. This was reel 13. Um, and there were 300 pages of transcripts of, well, of, of two things. One, an FBI agent's following Louise every place she went and reporting where she went and who she had contact with or whatever. And then there are also the telephone transcripts, including the orders to the grocery store, what they ordered. Diana was 12 years old. She wanted to skip school, and she's planning with a friend that they're going to tell their parents they're going to go to a friend's house, and, and, and so they skip school. I mean, that's on there. There's all your taxpayer dollars at work re recording really, all this stuff. So, but there are a lot of other things. There are a lot of other people. I mean, there are other, I forget now, names, but there are other, it's the J. Edgar Hoover Confidential Files, um, reels of microfilm of FBI transcripts of all kinds of things. Yes, she, well, I don't know. I don't know. If it was, it was with another woman. Um, at one point, and, and Harry continued getting these telephone transcripts until, until July 45. I mean, before and after the trip to Russia. And, and at one point, like in like May or so, 45, Hoover sent to um, Hopkins, okay, he said, there are three women to look at here, and he gave the name of three women. Um, there was there was a woman who was absolutely enraptured with Louise. I mean, so, I don't know, but because I don't know because Louise in these Louise seems like she knows she's the telephone's being tapped, and and even when she's she's being tailed, I mean, and the FBI person says this, she she's looking around to see and she you know backtrack you know she does the kind of thing that somebody who feels they're being watched does, so I I, I, I don't know. I mean I I, I, I you know, in terms of whether it was actual sexual activity, I don't have evidence for that one way or the other. But certainly, Harry was worried about it, and that uh, she was so the, the, the surveillance is December forty-four through to at least July forty-five. Did, did you get a feeling that that was unusual? Uh, no, I think Ed Hoover did that. I think he did it to whomever. Yeah. Personal friendship between Hopkins and Hoover that wasn't bad, or just kind of thing that was needed. FDR's approval. I'm sure FDR since. The way Hoover worked things, I'm sure FDR was included in the loop. I mean, you know, in terms of if there was anything interesting, um, but the way it was seemed to be set up was that Hoover just requested this. Oh, there was also there's also I think there had been earlier, earlier FBI surveillance of Louise because, well, 
because there was some, um, Eleanor Roosevelt's secretary, Melvina Thompson, who's a fairly important person, uh, thought that uh, the Louise's, but Louise had been Paris editor of Harper's Magazine in Paris, and that Malvina Thompson, ER secretary, thought that some of Louise's friends were pro-Nazi. And there's also, because Harry Hopkins was always a controversial figure uh, because of his administration of WPA and the idea this is this Rasputin guy who has the ear of the president. So he was always a controversial figure, and there's always, he was always under a lot of attack. I mean, as partisan attack. Um, so there was a lot of, there were accusations that Hopkins and this or that, and then Hopkins asked the FBI to check those things. So I mean, there was a history of the FBI being involved, checking out this or that with regard to Louise before this. But this, these particular transcripts, the detailed stuff is December beginning in December '44. Yeah. Well, there's a famous, famous feud between Ickes and, and Hopkins because they're both in charge, in charge of work relief, WPA and PWA. You know, they're just, and, they're, and that's the way, as you know, that's the way FDR used to do it, right? It, uh, two or three people let them play and fight with each other, and he'd figure out what he wanted to do. Um, so th there's certainly that rivalry there, and Ickes' diary is filled, filled with his fuming, fumigating, fuming, fuming about, uh, fulminating, fulminating, uh, fulminating about why does Hopkins have all this influence? You know, because Ickes also had political ambitions to be, uh, you know, to be, to be president in 1940, vice president candidate in 1944, and so forth. Um, there's also a kind of competition, too, that, that um, Ickes had a very, a wife that was 40 years younger than he was. Uh, and and the, there was a certain amount of competition like this in the, in the Roosevelt administration. What 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 do you, well, you think? Like the the break you're talking about from forty two is you know someone else is abandoning the wars against us. Well, I, I think Ickes was not able to replace unfortunately in terms of the kind of the foreign policy advice, no one really re replaced well, it's the same reason Morozov was trying to prove that he right. was back and then disavowed. Right. But then again right, but look at the difference between Morgan thought it was kind of a doofus and <laughs> And, and, and Hopkins, and that's part of the problem. And when, when Roosevelt sees that Morgenthau's plan has all this opposition and has not really been seriously thought through and not clear, Hopkins would not have pushed a plan that had not been cleared with Stimson and Hull and these other, right? Hopkins would have covered his bases if he wanted to, because he knew how to work the bureaucracy. Morgenthau thought he, was, he would just kind of take it from the top, just getting FDR's approval, and that obviously wasn't going to work. Yeah. That that's a good point. I I don't, you know, I, that that's a very good point. Uh, although I think the things that I've talked about here are, well, I don't know. I mean, I think the things I've talked about here are are fairly straightforward, but. There is that element. I mean, there is the element that, that Harry 
what strikes me is he continues to have these trans and, he, and, and there are little notes in the file of Harry thanking Hoover for sending over the latest, the monthly batch of, of transcripts. So he, he continues to be interested in this, even though they, they, they're on this trip to Russia together, it's about two, three weeks. So it, it's kind of a puzzle to me why Harry continued to have these, these, these but he did. So the relationship, the relationship encompassed closeness in some ways and this kind of estrangement in other ways. Well, what do you say? What do you see as the difference? I think that um, Kennan seems to me um, is, is is taking these personal relationships that he has and and shaping a strategy, a, a way to, to engage with the Soviet Union or not to engage with right, the Soviet right. Union, and drawing up a big policy that that shapes um, well, it shapes national uh, right. policy. Whereas this is the ways in which personal relations um, govern. Right, right. That's that's a very good distinction. I think, <clears throat> I, I would think that the difference is the fact that reflects the difference in the people. That, that Kennan is above all a strategist, and Hopkins is above all a tactician. Although it's interesting, as I've looked more at Kennan more recently, is that of course Kennan is also very good at at the being a, a tactician, also in terms of the ties that he builds with people and, and, and you know he's much more influential with Harriman than he than he indicates in his memoirs and um, already in, in this 1945 he addresses letters to, to dear Averill um, so I think Kennan is both so it doesn't necessarily reflect a shift in your own conceptions of how intimacy and no I think those you know those and those those ways complement each other you know they may be contradictory you know maybe I may be Faulty in other ways, but I think those those approaches complement each other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's how how personal relationship help help form the Cold War, help help win World War II, which is part of the story that we talked about today, and form uh, the early Cold War. So what, what I'm talking about there is, is really that I emphasize a lot the, the uh, shift between Roosevelt and Truman. And, and also, well, that's one of the things I emphasize, yeah. Well, help, give, help gives you an awful lot of leeway there, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a determinist in terms of this. I, I, but I think these are factors that have been neglected that, that are important. Yeah. Well, what might have happened if uh, 
1940? I don't know. I, um, I don't know. Well, conceivably, I mean, another person who was kind of shoved out, being shoved out right at that moment in the spring of 1940, was was Tommy Corcoran, who was extremely capable. I mean, he he was probably, perhaps even more capable than than um, than Hopkins. Yeah, I'm just giving you something off the top because I can't think of another. There were relatively few people in this circle, and that's, that's, that's one of the, I think, problems that Roosevelt had. But Corcoran was an incredibly multi-talented person, uh, brilliant. Uh, Roosevelt might have felt that he had to overlook, was, or maybe have his wife bumped off, I don't know, but <laughs> through Hoover, again, multi-talented guy. Um, that, that's the person I would think of. But, uh, but you know, there might have been no one. I mean, the history might have been somewhat different. Well, thank you. Please join me in acknowledging Frank's excellent presentation. Thank you. Thanks for the questions. Thank you for coming. I would like to remind you that at 3.30 this afternoon in this room, we'll have a workshop uh, designed primarily for graduate students and faculty in the field of international history. Thank you. My name is Martin Nouveau. I'm, I am a physician. Yeah. I yeah. am working here in neuroscience for Murrow, and I'm uh, Thank you. Very good, Peter. Thank you, Peter.